can't tell you how many times I've had to do that, look up verses, memorize verses, and pray uh, before I get together with my family, whom I love so much, but who can push my buttons. Anybody else feel that way? Okay, a few of you. A couple of quick announcements. We'll get into our last sermon from this series. Today, as soon as church is over in here, there's actually going to be extended child care. If you have kids back in the, the children's area, we're going to have a uh, quick meeting over our budget. We'll vote on next year's budget. And then um, a lot of you have questions about where we're headed with the youth ministry in the new year. And so we'll answer questions about that as well. Tuesday night, 6 p.m., 6 to 645. We'll get you in here. We'll get you out. We're going to have a great time singing lots of Christmas carols. We'll end with candlelight, um, have some fun. Stuff for the kids. It's a very kid-friendly service on uh, on Tuesday, so be here at six, and we'll have you walking out of here by six forty-five. We do have church next Sunday morning, eleven a.m. And then um, parents of youth—that's parents of, of teenagers or students from twelfth, seventh uh, grade through twelfth grade. We're going to have a luncheon on January 12th. That'll be a Sunday right after church out here in the living room. And we'll be asking in the weeks ahead to uh, RSVP so we make, have, make sure we have enough food. We're going to ask you to bring some stuff. Church will provide the meat. We ask you to provide all the sides and the dessert. And we'll have a good time that day. Uh, and, and at the end, a couple other things. End of our service today, we've been doing this every week. We're trying to get enough cash to pay for our building. It looks great, doesn't it? It does. And you hadn't been on the inside. And uh, there's nothing done on the inside yet. So we've paid for what you have seen and we have got to have enough money to pay for the rest of it. So we're taking up an offering. Um, you can pay, you can either put it in the bucket. Everything that goes in there goes to the building. Our building a great life, our bagel basket. Love it. Or you can do that online as well. When you go online and give, there's a drop down menu. And if you push... Um, uh, B-A-G-L, that's the, the building fund, that'll go straight to that. Now, one other thing is, on January 5th and 12th, we'll be baptizing. And I know some of you have prayed recently to receive Christ, and if you're interested in being baptized, let me know. We'll put you on the schedule for that. Um, we've got some folks that came up uh, last Sunday, uh, week before and last Sunday, folks came up and they said, hey, you know, I've been a Christian for a while, didn't have a clue what baptism meant, and I want to be baptized. Will you rebaptize me? Of course we'll do that. And then we've got some other folks that are brand and new believers in Christ. And so we're going to be talking to them about uh, baptism as well. So we're excited about all of that. Um, all right. So Christmas means different things to different people, right? Some of us, it's, it brings us in the room with strange people. Some of those people we like and some of those people we don't. It's just Christmas. And this is the, this is the one time a year that we're reminded in bold face type that you can pick your friends, but you cannot pick your relatives for better or for worse. Well, Jesus had some really strange relatives. That's what we've been discovering in this series. Called it Crazy Christmas because there's been some crazy label makers. There's been a crazy older brother. Um, there's, there's been all of these crazy things going on. Today, though, and I don't mean this in a bad sense at all. Today, we're talking about a crazy promise keeper, crazy good. Not as in psycho. The rest of it's been kind of psycho. Today, this is an unbelievable promise keeper no matter what. And see, what we've discovered is Jesus had some X-rated family members. Stuff we couldn't even read all of the verses in here from the Old Testament because it is so bizarre and so strange. And I've encouraged you to read it. And I've gotten emails and phone calls about some of this strange stuff. What does this mean? And, and had some really good discussions. Um, but we figured out that Jesus, that Matthew did this. He included these people in the family tree to show that messed up people are the whole point of Christmas. Um, today, we're going to get to the one ancestor that Jesus is most closely associated with in his family tree. 
And, and instead of point at all the good stuff this dude did, Matthew points out the bad stuff. In fact, he points out the worst thing that he ever did in his life. That's what is in the uh, family tree of Jesus. And the Jewish readers would stop when they got there and they would remember the story. Um, this guy's character and morality were not always the greatest. One time he told a lie out of insecurity. 85 priests of the living God were murdered because of his lie. Um, uh, he had one of, one of his most loyal soldiers put to death in order to cover up a secret. He neglected his family so badly that one of his kids actually goes to war with him and fights him for the country. Uh, he, uh, one time, now he had many wives and they weren't supposed to do that, but, but he had a son, his favorite son, who had a sister and other siblings. Well, a stepson rapes the favorite son's sister. David does nothing about it. And the favorite son gets so mad that he plots for two years in order to murder the oldest son who'd raped his stepsister. I mean, so many embarrassing moments in this guy's life. But he is the one that is most closely associated with Jesus. From the Old Testament. And so here's what we're, here's the first thing on your listening guide. If you, if you got you version, you can look that up as well and take the notes there. Jesus was called the son of God, but he was also called the son of David. Did that go off? Crashed? Okay. It'll be back up in a minute. Um, let's, let's get busy with this, uh, this genealogy. Matthew 1, 1 through 6. And that's another reason to have your, um, your smartphone and look it up. You've got the scripture right in front of you. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. That's the first weird story. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. There's the first lady mentioned, R-rated, X-rated past. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. What was Rahab's word? What was her label? harlot, prostitute. Don't understand why that's in there. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth is a great story, but Ruth wasn't Jewish. And then Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. King David was the father of Solomon. And right here you'd expect to say, and Solomon was the father of, but he doesn't go there. What does he do? King David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Does not even mention her name. What's her name? Bathsheba. <laughs> Why not King David, the shepherd who wrote so many of the Psalms we have in the book of Psalms in the Bible? Why not include that David? Why not include David, the shepherd boy who killed Goliath? Why not David, the warrior king? Because he's considered the greatest warrior in the Old Testament. Why not David, the builder? Because he did some really cool stuff. Why not? No. Matthew points to David, the adulterer and murderer. He's considered the greatest king in Israel's history, but we don't get that picture. The story starts in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the story of David happens a thousand years before the Christmas story that we're going to read in a minute and that we'll read again on, on Christmas Eve. God tells the prophet Samuel to go anoint a new king. The first king has been a complete disaster. What was the first king of Israel's name? Saul. God rejects him is what the Bible says. And he tells Samuel to go and anoint a new king. He sends Samuel to, I'm not making this up, a little town called what? Bethlehem. 
The first mention of Bethlehem is not the birth of Christ. It's a thousand years before Christ. This is where Jesse and his eight sons lived. So Samuel shows up and he says, hey, bring your sons in because God has chosen one of your sons to be the new king. And so because the youngest was out herding sheep, he brings seven of his sons before uh, Samuel. And Samuel looks at the first one and he goes, oh, scripture tells us in, in 1 Samuel uh, 16, he says um, that that this must be the chosen king, because look at him. He was he was good to look at. If y'all watch The Voice, Blake Shelton would have said, he's a good-looking man. <laughs> so he, he says, this is the guy. And, and God immediately says to him in the next verse, he says, do not look at the outward appearance, for I've rejected him. God doesn't look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. This is not what a king looks like. Brings in son, son number two. Nope. Son number three, four, five, six, seven. Nope. So Samuel, Samuel's kind of exasperated. He looks at, at Jesse and he goes, got any more? And Jesse goes, yeah, he's the youngest, but he's herding sheep. And Samuel says, I'll wait. We don't know how long it took, but eventually David shows up and God says to Samuel, that's the one. Now, if you know anything about Samuel, you know, he was not a good parent. In fact, he was a horrible parent, but he was a good prophet. And so he obeyed God, even though he could have been killed for this. And he anoints David, the new king. Now, years go by, if you know the story, years go by, crazy, only God set of circumstances happen so that David becomes king. And several years into his reign, David's walking around his palace and he's looking around and he's going, man, my life's pretty good. And he looks out and he sees the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was this huge portable worship center. It was like a huge tent where the, the priests would go in and they would, they would make sacrifices before God. And it represented where God's presence dwelt among the Israelites. And so David looks out and he goes, I'm living in this beautiful house. God's living in a tent. That's not right. I'm going to build God a house. And, and at this point, the, the prophet comes in and the prophet says, oh, that's a great idea. And then he goes home and, and, uh, and the prophet and God says to the prophet, mm, you need to go back with David with some good news. And some not so good news. Let's pick it up in 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 8. Now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that, that God often made covenants with the people. He would say, I will be your God if you obey these things. I will be your God if you don't do these things. If you disobey me, I will turn away from my promise. That's not what he did here. Here he makes an unconditional promise. Actually, two to David. The first unconditional promise is, I will make your name famous. Now, again, this was 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years before Christ. How many of you have heard, had heard the name King David before you came here today? Let me see your hands. 3,000 years later, people all over the world have heard of King David. Did God keep his promise to King David? I will make your name famous. Verse 11. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. House means a generational name. So unconditional promise number two is I will make your family a dynasty. He says years from now, people are going to know who you are because you're going to have someone on the throne. Now look what it says in verse 12. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. Who was David's son who became king right after him, immediately after him? Solomon. 
He is the one, Solomon, who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. David, here's, here's the not so good news. You don't get to build the temple. You're a man of bloodshed. I'm not going to let you build the temple. However, your son Solomon is a man of peace. He, his reign will be one of peace. I will let him build it. So David, David doesn't get upset with God. David gathers all the materials and he presents it to Solomon um, right before his death. And he said, I've done everything. You build it. So David, David was grateful to God for what God had done. Now, look at verse 14. I will be his father, God says, talking about Solomon, and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with rod like any father would do. So he's saying, David, when you are your son, if you sin, I have got to discipline you like any good father. God says, I am the best father and I can't let stuff go. So I will discipline you. Verse 15. <clears throat> this is awesome. But my love will, what's that next word? Never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. My love will never be taken from him. Verse 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure, what's that word? Forever before me. Your throne will be established, what's that word? Forever before me. This is an unconditional promise to David. And if this was a fairy tale, the very next thing would say, and King David lived happily ever after. But you've learned that scripture isn't a fairy tale, haven't you? Not four chapters later, David tests God's patient in an extreme way. Second Samuel 11, 1. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, where do kings normally go at this time? Out to war. David sent Joab, that was the commander of his army, sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Where, where are kings supposed to be at this time of year? Where is, where is David? In Jerusalem. Now, how many of you hunt? Let me see the hunters. If someone else is hunting and you're not, how does that make you feel? Jealous, right? How many of you are fishermen? If somebody else is fishing and they're catching, not just fishing, and they're catching a lot of fish, how does that make you feel? Jealous, yeah. So hunters who don't get to hunt, they're bored, right? Fishermen who don't fish, they're bored, right? Well, I think David got bored because he should have been out with the army. Kings were supposed to lead their armies. And so one day, I think he gets bored and he goes up on the roof and the, the king's palace would be the tallest structure in the city. And he begins to walk around and he looks and he sees someone. What's her name? Bathsheba. Now, I remember this story from when I was, when I was in Sunday school and I thought this was the funniest thing ever, ever because her name was Bathsheba. And what was she doing? Taking a bath. Now, as someone whose last name is Washburn, I've heard every joke you can imagine about Washburn. My buddies, what are you going to do? Wash your clothes and then burn them? I'm, yeah. You know, wash and wear. That's not my name, you idiot. But I've heard all of these. So I'm thinking, I'm sitting in Sunday school. I thought her name was Sheba. And they just nicknamed her Bath because that's what she was doing. That's the way my mind works. You understand. So... David calls out to his servant and he says, go find out who she is. The servant comes back and says, um, sir, that's Uriah's wife. Now, anybody with a brain and any amount of control over his hormones would go, oh, good for Uriah. You go. Nice. But David didn't do that. 
David being king and being in a place that he's not supposed to be, sends a servant and he says, go bring her to me. They bring her to him and he has sex with her, sends her home. No harm, no foul, right? Happens all the time. No big deal, right? She gets pregnant from that one night. And so if you know anything about David, you're thinking, "Mm, at this point, David mans up, right? Now, this is the most embarrassing thing that's happened in his life. He's failed a lot. He's done a lot of good, but he's failed a lot. But this is the biggest mess up in his life. So he sends to Joab, he sends a message and says, hey, send me Uriah the Hittite. Now, Joab doesn't know what's going on. Joab's a smart dude, though. I think he figures it out before the end. So he sends Uriah home and Uriah comes and meets with King David. And King David says, hey, tell me, tell me how Joab's doing. How's he doing? And Uriah's like, well, it's war. We're killing people. They're trying to kill us. You know, Uriah is a good guy. And David says, okay, okay. He talks to him a long time. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and wash your feet. Now, that was a euphemism for meaning go home and hang out with your wife. Go spend some good time with you, quality time with your wife. I mean, this is what he was talking about. And so Uriah leaves the king's presence and the Bible tells us that he goes and he sleeps at the gate of the king's palace with the servants. David hears about this the next day and I wanted you, I didn't put this on the, on the listening guide or up top, but I want you to hear from Uriah what he said. When, when David said, why didn't you go home and enjoy the pleasures of your wife? Here's Uriah's reply. The ark of God and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. And Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. David's like, oh, shoot. Plan A fell apart because he wanted him to go home, sleep with his wife. And then if she got pregnant, they didn't have sonograms and all that stuff. You know, three months, two months, whatever. You know, it's not that big a deal. They would just assume it was Uriah's wife. So David hatches plan B. Plan B is... Let's bring Uriah back. Let's eat and get him drunk. Because everybody knows what happens to a healthy man when he's drunk, right? I mean, right? That's what he's thinking. So he gets him drunk and he says, Hey, Bathsheba's at home. Why don't you go spend some time with her? You can go back to the war tomorrow. And you know what Uriah did, right? He goes back to the gate, lays down with the servants, and sleeps there. Because upright, righteous, good soldiers would never go home and take a day off when their men, men under their command, are giving their lives for the kingdom. And at this point, wouldn't it make sense for God to rip the kingdom from David and give it to Uriah because Uriah was more righteous than the king, right? It's not what God does. So David calls Uriah back and he says, hey, I'm going to send a note with you to Joab. I I need to give him some instructions. So he writes a letter and he says in the letter, I want you to put Uriah at the front. When whenever the people start shooting their bow and arrows, whenever they do that, I want you to draw back and I want you to leave Uriah to die. Joab's a smart man. Joab's already figured out in my mind what's going on. I mean, I think he's already figured out what's going on. So the really low thing, I just I don't know. I don't know how you could stab anyone in the back anymore. Was to write a letter, fold it, and he has a little signet ring, and he presses down in the in the wax to seal the letter, and he hands it to Uriah. He says, "Hey, buddy, I need you to take a message to the the, the commander of the army. Would you do that for me?" What does Uriah say? Of course. Yes, my king. Whatever you ask me to do, I'll do it. So he takes the letter back. Joab opens it up. Joab's sm- smart. He figures it out. They go. To war, they get too close. 
And what happens? They pull back and Uriah is killed. Uriah is a fighting man. He stays out there and he's killed. And uh, Joab sends message back to David and he says, go back and tell the king this, that we got too close to the city. And when the king says, don't you remember these stories where they got too close to the city and people were killed? He says, when the king asks you that, say, and Uriah's dead too. So the servant comes back and that's what he says. And as soon as he says Uriah's dead, the king sighs. And he thinks that his sin is secret. Second Samuel eleven twenty six. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace and she became one of his wives. Because after all, it's only proper after you've murdered her husband to let her mourn for a while before you make her. I mean, people will talk if you try to marry her before the, the period of mourning is over. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. And at this point, you got to ask, if you don't know this story, you got to ask, what's God going to do? Because when God gets displeased, people tend to die. He rejected Saul because he was displeased with Saul. We read the story of, of Judah and Tamar. Judah's first son displeased the Lord. The Lord took him. Second son displeased the Lord. The Lord took him. And at this point, the Bible says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So what's he going to do? Does he reject the promise? He sends a prophet named Nathan. A different prophet comes to him and, and he tells this story and he says, you know, in this city there was a rich man, there was a poor man. The rich man had some people come over and the poor man had one little ewe lamb. One little lamb that he took care of like it was a part of the family. That ewe lamb slept with him. He took care of that, that ewe lamb like it was a part of the family. And when the people came to visit the rich man, the rich man, instead of taking one of his many sheep and slaughtering it for this, the meal, he goes and he sends a servant to take the one lamb from the poor man to kill it and to offer it for his guests. And David burns with indignation. And he said, the man who did this should die. Remember I told you a few weeks ago that you got to be very careful whenever, whenever someone gets self-righteous because they usually have a secret. And here's the amazing thing that Nathan did. When David said, that man should die and he should repay, Nathan says, you're the dude. And he said, God knows it. David thought his, his sin was secret. God knew. And David reacts like we thought he would have sooner. He goes to the temple, to the tabernacle, and he falls down before God and he confesses his sin. He said, against you, you only have I sinned. God, I am wrong. And God forgives him. It's just this amazing thing. And, and if you want to read his confession, it's contained in Psalm 51. God forgave him, but, his, but the baby died as part of the consequences. Because God may forgive your sin, but he never removes the consequences of your sin. There are testimonies here in this room about things you did knowing it was wrong. And yes, God has forgiven you, but you still have the scars of bad choices in your past. The baby dies. And God's discipline upon David was brutal. But God did not take back his promise. Because what kind of promise was it? Unconditional. David's life fell apart. His favorite son, remember him, tried to steal the throne from him. His favorite son murders his oldest son. The kingdom was divided for a while as the favorite son um, publicly humiliates David. And then Joab, remember him, commander of the king's army? Joab murders David's favorite son. 
But all through the chaos and the bloodshed, God never withdrew his promise because the promise was unconditional. Now, fast forward 990 years after that story. A man named Joseph, who was a descendant of David, along with his pregnant fiancée, Mary, make their way to what town? Bethlehem. Bethlehem literally means house of bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So that the town by this time is known as the city of David, the town of David. And by this time, um, by the time he gives birth, he, by the time Mary gives birth, David is the great, 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 great grandfather of the Messiah. God always keeps his promises. If you're Matthew, the ex-tax collector, and you know you don't have a chance to get to God based on what you do, if you know this, that you are far from God, and you know that the only way to come to God is based on what Jesus has done, and you know you're about to tell this story, this, the greatest story on earth, and you know you're writing to the most religious people who've ever lived, and these religious people think of David as a saint, and you've got to knock down all their religion and all their traditions, how could you possibly leave this story out, the story of David? They wanted to look at him as the great king. Matthew said, he's the adulterer. He's the murderer. (laughs) Because see, the good news is that Jesus comes for people, not the ones who think they're righteous. Jesus comes, the Christmas story is all about those who know they're not good enough to come. Matthew wants them to know that God is a promise keeper. And even the worst sin imaginable cannot Keep God from doing what he promised. That's the last thing there is. The will of God cannot be stopped. The kingdom of God cannot be stopped. And this new king, Jesus, would make a promise, not just to one person, but to all who would call on his name, that they could be adopted into the family of God based solely on what Jesus Christ has done. And Matthew wants everyone to know that that the only bloodshed that will happen in this new covenant is the blood of the innocent third party, the innocent lamb of God. I don't have to give my blood, but I do have to bow the knee and accept what Jesus Christ has done for me. The one who fulfilled the promise that God made to David a thousand years before. The most revered king in the Old Testament was a sinner just like you and me. He needed grace just like me and you and me. And the king of kings, the greatest king of all times, shows up in the New Testament to fulfill God's promise to David. And make a new promise to you and me. Christmas is the ultimate demonstration that God always keeps his promises. So with all of that as a backdrop, I want to read to you a portion of the Christmas story. Starting in Luke chapter 2 verse 10. But the angel reassured them, the shepherds. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. You're a part of all people. God is making a promise to all people, good people, bad people, those who think they are good, those who know they are bad, to religious people and to decidedly irreligious people, this is good news for you. Verse 11, the Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. David, the promise breaker. David, the unfaithful. David, the horrible father, the accomplice to murder. That David, in the city of David, a Savior has been born. Verse 13 and 14. 
Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, this is one of the reasons I like to sing that song we did earlier, Glory to God. Because that's what the angels said to the shepherds, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. God promised us peace, but did you know the only way for you to have peace with God is for God to remove the obstacle to your peace. Do you know what your obstacle is? Sin. We have done wrong And we cannot do anything to make it right. And so we have to come based solely on what Christ has done on the cross. If you don't have peace with God, it's because you're holding on to your sins. You're making excuses. You're trying to clean yourself up before you come to God. And according to Jesus Christ, that is impossible. He didn't ask Matthew to clean up his life before he followed him. He said, Matthew, as you're collecting taxes, come follow me. And God cleaned him up. Every follower of Christ ever has been a filthy sinner, undeserving of grace. But when they bowed the knee, God adopted them into his family. People who think they're good enough, they don't ever get to see God. Because here's what Jesus said. Right after he met Matthew, right after he went to Matthew's house and had this big party with a bunch of tax collectors and all the religious people show up and they said, they can't even come in the house. They say, how dare your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? Here's exactly what Jesus said to them. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. You have to humble yourselves and admit that you can't clean yourself up. Then you can have peace. And, and see, don't you dare. I hear this all the time because we're, we're in a church with jacked up people. I mean, we're just honest about it. Everybody has jacked up people. We're just real honest about it. Don't you dare tell me that your sin is too great for God to forgive you. Because the moment you start telling me, oh, I'm such a bad sinner, God can't forgive me, I'm going to tell you the story of David again in slow motion with full color details. Or I'll tell you about Tamar. Or I'll tell you about the harlot Rahab in slow motion. So maybe you'll get it. That there is no sin so great that the love of God can't overcome it. You can't have the promise of Christmas until you quit trying to do life on your own. And here's the promise of Christmas, that you don't have to pay for your sin. That doesn't seem fair. It's because it's not. It's not fair that an innocent person died to pay the price for your sin. But that's the story of Christmas. It cost your Savior his life. Would you bow your heads for just a moment? I love this time of year because for whatever reason, people are open to the message of Christ. Could be that they're lonely. Could be that that they have really messed up relationships with family and they just, I don't know what it is, but this time of year, people are open to the message of Christ. And so if you've been far from God or if you've never had a relationship with him, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Just pray it silently while I pray out loud. Heavenly Father, I believe that you're a great promise keeper. As you kept your promise to David, I believe you'll keep your promise to me. To forgive me. To accept me. To love me. I will no longer come to you or avoid you on the basis of what I do or what I don't do.
Instead, I'll come boldly because of what you've done for me. In Christ Jesus, my Savior and my peace, I pray. Amen.